This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I'm Lisa Muscatine. I'm co-owner of Politics and Prose along with my husband and co-owner Brad Graham, who's right here. Um, but here's what else I am. I am good and mad. Really, really mad. And I think I can tell that I'm not alone in this room, probably in this town, um, probably across the country. Um, but what I am happy about is that tonight we have one of the most insightful voices in America writing and speaking about gender and politics, Rebecca Traister. Um, who is with us to help us understand the, this extraordinary emergence of female rage in our culture and in our political discourse uh, over the past two years and over the past two centuries. Her new book is called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Uh, it just came out yesterday. It's already going gangbusters, big surprise. Um, her timing, I might say, could not be more exquisite. But then again, as Rebecca said on NPR, and I don't know if any of you heard her interview yesterday, she said, well, pretty much any moment of the Trump era would have been exquisite timing for this book. You know, pick whichever minute, hour, day, week you want, and the book would have been very timely. Um, but I just want to say it's not just the subject of this, of good and mad, that makes it so important and so relevant right now. It's also the author. Rebecca Traster is arguably the most brilliant feminist voice in America today. Um, and that's what uh, a number of people have said, including the writer Anne Lamott, and I could not agree more. And I think for anybody in the room, and I hope this it speaks for many of you, uh, who've, who've read her previous two books, Big Girls Don't Cry. Did anybody read Big Girls Don't Cry? <laughs> Wonderful book. Um, I think the best book about gender dynamics in the 2008 presidential campaign. And then her second book, which New York Times bestseller, All the Single Ladies. Um, <laughs> a provocative examination of the political and cultural influences of single women in America. And if you've read any of e either of those books, you understand why so many people are turning to Rebecca to help navigate the fraught political landscape we find ourselves in at this moment. Um, I assume and hope you all saw uh, her piece that took up most of the front page of the uh, New York Times Week in Review on Sunday about how anger played out in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings last week. Her fresh thinking about complicated and highly charged issues is why so many people do turn to her books and to the pieces she writes in New York Magazine, where she's the writer at large, uh, L in L Magazine, where she's a contributing editor, um, and her work I'm sure you've seen over the past many years in uh, lots of other publications from the New Republic to Salon to The Nation to Vogue, and I could go on and on. Um, and then there's her Twitter feed. Um, if you're not yet one of the 133,000 people following on her on Twitter, you might want to become one. Um, and I, I was having a conversation with my daughter this afternoon, who also happens to be here with one of my two sons, um, enlightened men, I just want to say. Uh, and we were, we were discussing exactly what it is that distingu distinguishes Rebecca's work uh, from so many of the of the many other talented journalists uh, around, 
And we could point to quite a few things, but my daughter, when uh, summed it up best, I thought. She said, Rebecca's unique power as a writer and commentator stems from the fact that she is both deeply intellectual and deeply feeling. She's rigorous and probing in her thinking, but simultaneously empathetic to her core. And that is truly a rare combination. Um, and I thought that was a, a really, really good summation of her. In Good and Mad, as in her previous books, you see this. And also another thing that I think distinguishes her, which is just a, a tremendous moral integrity. And you see all of that at work as she weaves together journalism, history, political analysis, social and cultural criticism, and her own personal experiences to make sense of the current upheaval, but as we are experiencing it in real time. Perhaps most important, she makes the compelling case that women's anger, the rage and fury that so many of us feel, must not only be acknowledged and accepted, but owned by women, celebrated as an essential and potent weapon in the long, difficult, and often draining fight for social justice and equal rights. So all of you women out there and all of you enlightened men out there, that's um, what Senator Maisie Hirono keeps saying, enlightened men, which I really appreciate. Um, you got to stay angry. Please stay angry. There's a lot of work to do. Um, and you'll hear more about that, obviously, uh, when Rebecca comes on stage. Um, but also, we are extremely lucky tonight to have a very, very special friend um, and woman of inspiration in conversation with Rebecca. If you were watching the Ford Kavanaugh hearings last week on television, which I assume many of you were, you may have noticed Fatima Gosgraves sitting in the audience behind Dr. Ford in the hearing room. Fatima is the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, one of the leading organizations in America fighting for women's rights for the last 40 years. From, um, you, can, you, can thank, you can thank that organization for a lot of the progress on Title IX, equal pay, reproductive rights, and they also take uh, a role in challenging judicial nominees who, for whatever reason, um, cannot be trusted as jurists or Supreme Court justices uh, to protect the rights of women. Um, Fatima is, of course, herself a lawyer, the author of many articles about gender discrimination and other issues involving women and women's rights, and she's a frequent commentator on the editorial pages of major newspapers and also on NPR, CNN, and MSNBC. It is such a privilege and an honor to welcome Rebecca Traster and Fatima Gosgraves to... Thank you all so much for coming out in the middle of the hellscape, in the hell mouth. <laughs> My God, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And like all of you here, I am totally fangirling Rebecca, so it's okay. It's okay. I feel that way too. Um, so Rebecca, I had started reading your book before the Kavanaugh hearings, and I and I sort of had to pause in reading it. I was too angry uh, <laughs> to get through it at the time, and I picked it back up last weekend. 
but before I get to some of the other things, I think we just have to cut to what we witnessed last Thursday. And it is one of those things. I left that room with sort of anger pouring through my veins. And it was a feeling similar to the feeling that I had the day after the election. It reminded me of the feeling I felt when I learned that there were babies in cages in this country. It, it, you know, I was sort of seeing red. And so I think we have to start there about that feeling that many of us in and outside of that room had and where we put it, what we do with it. Um, so I think one of the reasons I too, and I, and I heard from a lot of other people who felt on the Friday morning as if it were November 9th again. Um, and I think that the intensity of some of that feeling stems from the familiarity and a feeling of kind of futility in the face of this form of power and, and its manipulations and abuses by the powerful. And we have many models. The, the call back to November 9th is because we had, we had just watched the, you know, the unprepared, unfit, incompetent toddler who'd run on open racism, misogyny, and xenophobia triumph over the opponent who, whatever you thought of her, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who felt a lot of things about her, was eminently qualified for the job, capable of doing it, and, and didn't get it. We, there's the callback that so many of us were making on Thursday and in the days that preceded it, um, to Anita Hill. And the, the stunning power that her willingness, much like Dr. Blasey Ford, you know, to come forward when asked and tell this story in the face of derision and disrespect and an unlikelihood that she would be believed and yet tell the story because it was important and it was morally correct and because it should have impeded the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, but it didn't. And the thing that happened on Thursday was we watched another woman do that and it's very rare at this point that the nation all looks in the same direction at the same time. And so many people sat and watched as this woman, another woman again, challenged the ascension of a powerful man who she remembered having abused that power, having assaulted her. And the story was so clear and so compelling and then to watch him come out and deploy a weapon that she did not have in her arsenal. She could not have been angry on her own behalf and had it work. If you try to imagine, even though we know, we heard her, she has so much to be angry about, beginning with the assault, beginning with the ways in which she couldn't even tell people about it, up through the kind of harm it did through later parts of her life, up through having her name be brought forward against her will, up through the, the havoc that has been wreaked on her life uh, since. But we cannot imagine a scenario in which she walked into that hearing room and said, even though she would have been righteous and correct in saying, I was assaulted and you're going to put this man on the Supreme Court, we cannot fathom, or we can. It would have been that she was 
fundamentally untrustworthy because that anger showed her emotion. It wasn't anger for women historically, if they express it, it undercuts the seriousness, believability of what they're saying. And then we watched the man that she had told the story about walk into a walk into that room and deploy that thing that she could never have used on her own behalf and use it on his own behalf. Because for men, deploying anger amplifies their seriousness. For white men, powerful white men. Well, in, in fact, some of the narrative that came out of that hearing was that his anger made him more credible. That yes. That was... That the feeling that night when I sort of got home and began to absorb what people were saying, what I understood very clearly was that he'd saved himself by being angry, and that Lindsey Graham had won himself a new job, and that together they had made clear the degree to which they were under assault, and that that was compelling enough for the men on the committee, and it was going to be compelling enough for America because we are trained to listen to the fury of white men and powerful men on their own behalf and understand it as serious and correct and righteous. Now, in the days that I have been doing press for this book, which are the, like all the days in between, right? <laughs> um, many have pointed out to me, and I've, and I've been thinking about it, that that initial response that he'd helped himself and that it worked for him, that was like animal. That speaks to how visceral it is that we hear that kind of anger deployed by these powerful men and understand it to have helped them, that that was like our animal response, and that as soon as everybody had time to pause and think about it and like watch Saturday Night Live, <laughs> that everybody was like, well, that was weird though. That was... <laughs> It was weird how he yelled at Amy Klobuchar about blacking out, right? Like that was, that was not cool, right? And, and that there has, and, and, and that's true too, in the intervening days, it's like some of these conversations and the insistence that we recognize, like I think a lot of the commentary being done out there by people who are saying, wait, don't just accept this as normal, this was fucked up has actually penetrated, but today, I saw, and many of you living in Washington probably saw polling, suggesting that in fact this is riling the Trump base, which confirms that animal instinct. So I, I mean, I, there's a lot in there, but that I, <laughs> but I wanna pick up on a point you raised about what happened in the days after, because I, I agree with you that some people are like, wow, but he would be a judge. You know, that's sitting with people, that's sinking in. Um, but I'm focused on how women, have, how it's aged with women. And I have to say, I found myself more angry, not less, in the days. But it, it feels like a quiet anger that is building. Maybe that sort of focused anger that makes people run for office or, I don't know, show for up For example. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know, you know whether there is sort of a quieter anger that maybe isn't showing up in the polling. Oh, well, this okay, so here's the question of what kind of anger matters, right? So when I say that the polling today is showing that it has riled the base and is working for the base and Fox News is is showing this story you know all day every day because they feel this is going to work this is going to save them in November right there's this idea that in fact that righteous anger of of white patriarchal power impeded is going to be just the thing 
And, and there's reason to believe that, right? That's the story of 2016. That's the story of a lot of America, right? Um, but there is the, there is not a lot of consideration of, as there has not been throughout this two years, of, and one of the reasons I'm, I wrote this book, about what it means that a massive number of women, not all women, a lot of the base that's being riled are white conservative women on Kavanaugh's behalf, but what does it mean that the women masses of them, the ones who are protesting, running for office, canvassing, registering voters, holding signs, willing to scream in the hearing room before there were even allegations of sexual assault. What does it mean that Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher went into an elevator and pointed their fingers in the face of a senator and demanded that he look at them and see them and hear them, and that that video was a communicative tool, and it went viral because that reached us, right? It reached the women out there who were furious, and that that fury matters too. And it's, and, and we have, we have been, it's been hard to convince, uh, a political press that that fury matters from the moment of the women's march. It's been hard to get them to take that anger that sent a record number of human beings out into the streets in political protest. I, it, when I wrote this book, I went back and I looked at the coverage of that Women's March from literally the day after. The biggest single day political protest in this country's history. And I went and I watched the Sunday shows. And I watched how George Stephanopoulos didn't ask questions about it. He asked Kellyanne Conway about the comparative size of Trump and, and Obama's inauguration crowd, and she had to bring it up three times. Kellyanne Conway brought it up. She saw. She knew. Okay. <laughs> and, and when she finally drew a question from Stephanopoulos, it was about how Madonna said she wanted to blow up the White House, as if that was the politically consequential thing that had come out of that protest. And then when Chuck Schumer came on as his next guest, and Schumer opened up by saying, oh, I attended the Women's March in New York yesterday, and the one question that Stephanopoulos asked in response was, were you comfortable with everything you saw there? As if the question of political consequence was whether Chuck Schumer had been discomfited. And there's every iteration of this, what we hear immediately after, whether it's, whether it's the Women's March, whether it is the, the airport protests, the travel ban protests, whether it is women running for office, whether it is the kind of activism that applied enough pressure to alter the healthcare vote, whether it is the women's, the strikers, the teacher strikers, now the fast food strikers, whether it is the Me Too movement, immediately what we hear is, yes, but it will fade, Yes, but the backlash. Yes, but is it serious? Yes, but are they going to win? Oh, if they're going to win their primaries, are they going to win in the general? I don't know, by the way, the answer to that. We don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's just been this diminishment, not really taking it seriously, and a reluctance on the part of a political press to see it as all of a piece. Well, one of the things you do in your book is you talk and break down for us some of the tropes, the feminist tropes that I think have hung over first wave and second wave feminism as, as if you are feminist, you are therefore angry, that, that, that they are, they equal each other. And I, and, you know, when you think about the last few years as there's been a developed 
I don't know if people are yet really calling it third wave, but a, a, a new idea of feminism, part of it is shedding some of the tropes from second wave. And I've been thinking about that because I thought, well, we have a lot to be mad about. <laughs> Why should we shed the angry trope, right? Is that right? So, right, <laughs> that's the question. And I think that the question, if you are a feminist, if you are engaged in progressive protest movements, you're angry, right? Why would you be a feminist if you weren't angry about gendered inequality? Why would you be engaged in, in these social and political movements if you weren't livid about racism or economic inequality? Of course we're angry. So much of our activism and our participation in the civic process, of course, is rooted in anger. But when it comes specifically, well, it's not just the women's movements. It's also true in the civil rights movement. It's, it's what anger, the way that, that anger has been connected with unseriousness and, and a lack of appeal um, within a power structure that wants to suppress the anger of less powerful people fighting for more power. And so it's the, the, the connection of feminism with anger is, is about the idea that we're told that that anger makes us unpersuasive, ugly, infantile, theatrical, unhinged, hysterical, which is literally the word that Ben Sass used in the Senate in, in the initial round of hearings talking about protesters um, who were shouting about health care, a woman who actually got up and said, I'm going to die if health care is repealed. No, th no, that was when Orrin Hatch called her a loudmouth and, yes. and said that we shouldn't have to put up with this, which is the exact same thing he said three weeks later about the allegations of assault that had been leveled at Brett Kavanaugh. We shouldn't have to put up with this. Right? So the, the, the problem isn't the connection, isn't the anger, it's the way the anger has been cast as delegitimizing to the, to the project. And I write a bit about how when I started writing sort of baby feminist commentary, like extremely rudimentary commentary, it was at a moment when feminism was coming back in the media after a couple of decades of having been absolutely frozen out in, in a period of deep anti-feminist backlash in the 1980s and the 1990s um, in the mainstream media. And I was a young person sort of trying out how to be a feminist with many peers doing the same thing, trying to bring it back into conversation. And what a lot of us, including me, did in an effort to, to distance ourselves from the caricatures that had been applied to a previous generation of activists was like pretty up our anger, like make it less angry, <laughs> make it hilarious and fun and approachable. And funny I, anger. Yeah, yeah, conversational, not confrontational. Like <laughs> this is just, this is a fun, and, and I don't think that was wrong. I write in the book, I don't, this is not a self-castigation exactly, because I think that to some degree it worked in making the conversation more broadly appealing and avoiding some of the negative caricatures that would have just immediately delegitimized it, I think that it pulled a lot of people into a conversation about gender and power and, and race and the economy and how to look at the world through a lens that considers all sorts of inequality as tied together. I think actually that it had a salutary effect on the mainstream conversation around these issues. But then there's, there's been a moment where it's like, okay, thanks for coming to the party. 
Now we're gonna talk about how we're fucking livid and we're not actually that amused anymore. All right. So one of the tropes you talk about in your book is the angry black woman and about how Michelle Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama, bore that trope when she was just walking. You know, she didn't have to do anything before uh, being seen as angry. And and I, I really resonated with that, it, just going to the grocery store, and if I'm not smiling perfectly, I, I'm clearly quite angry. And, <laughs> and I actually don't like walking around smiling all the time, right? Not all the time. Um, and, and my friend, Salome Chatella, wrote this amazing piece for the New York Times after the epic and infamous match at the finals of the U.S. Open where Serena Williams dared show anger. She totally showed her anger and, uh, and knew she would immediately be made to a caricature of the angry black woman. And her point was that was a gift to everyone, really. Being able to begin to show, as a black woman, you can get angry, that you, I don't know, have emotions, that that was a gift. And I don't, you know, I don't know what you think about um, when and how we can shed some of these tropes, right? There's real risk in showing anger, there, even for Serena. There, there is the cost of a match, a game a record that she's pursuing now. I don't know that she would have won that match, right? So I'm not exactly saying... I but believe that was, she always will win. Right. A long time <laughs> but, but we don't actually know if she would have won or not because the interference and the, the disruption. So you're, the question of how we start to change some of these things... One of the questions that I've gotten a lot so far is like, what do we do individually in terms of how we express anger? And I, and I write about that in this book. I write about my own sort of periods in which I try to show it a bit more and when I try to cover it up. And, but I really think that the key is that it's not about how we individually manipulate or titrate our anger. It's about how we listen to other women's anger and how we take it seriously and let it resonate, even if it's anger that is in part directed at us, perhaps especially <laughs> if it's anger directed at us. I think that the the notion that it's about, we already do so much work. In this book, I, I talked to Barbara Lee, the congresswoman from California, who tells this incredibly compelling story of her her fury Last summer, after, you know, she's been trying to repeal the AUMF, which she was the only member of Congress to vote against in 2001. She's been trying to repeal it for 16 years. Last summer, she gets bipartisan support to repeal it. Seriously, members of both parties was like the only functional thing that happened in Congress last year. Members of both parties agree to, to vote this out of committee. It's in a bill, and in the middle of the night, it's, the, it's her great victory, the, you know, repealing the authorization for the use of military force. And in the middle of the night, Paul Ryan takes it out of the bill, just strips it with no explanation, no reason. And she tells the story in this book of going to fight that 
and having to have a conversation in the chamber with Pete Sessions in which she challenges the removal of this repeal. And she describes in really excruciating detail, knowing how limited she was in her ability to show her fury in that moment, because she knew that if she allowed herself to express her anger, she would be, she'd be oh, you're just that angry black woman. And so she was consummately polite. She was, she, she was careful. She was solicitous. She was deferential. At the very end, she allows her temper to show a little bit. And she also talks about how many of her um, peers who were white congratulated her afterward on having held it in and how that made her angry because it's like, you don't know, you don't know the amount of internal calculation that had to go into this. This is something that Hillary Clinton has described about that second debate with Donald Trump and how she wanted to turn around and say, get away from me when he was like pawing the ground behind her and, and that she had to think, no, if I do that, um, that's gonna, that's gonna work against me. It's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose with the audience. And I think there's so much that we all do in every one of us every day is doing the work of, of modulating our voice and trying to figure out exactly what tone to hit. And so the thing to change is not how we express ourselves, but how we hear people. And I can't tell you everybody I interviewed for this book, like, I'm gonna say 85% of the women I talked to for this book said to me the same thing. Nobody's ever asked me why I'm angry before. Nobody's ever, Alicia Garza says, how come nobody ever just says, what are you so damn angry about? And that's the question we have to start answering because it's not about our individual behavior within this system that penalizes women for their anger. We have to change the system that, that disregards and doesn't respect or take seriously the anger of women. And how can we do that? It's through the, our own, the, the way that we receive that anger and the, and the regard that we pay to it. Okay. <laughs> On it. So we're approaching the anniversary of Me Too going viral. And, and a lot of us have been sitting and thinking deeply about what has happened in the last year. Because in many ways, the idea that Tarana Burke's really brilliant framework would become a national call to action, uh, it, it took a lot of us by surprise. And at the same time, if, if, you know, at some point a historian will look at this period and connect it very easily to the Women's March and connect all of the dots in ways that make more sense. And as I think about this last year of saying Me Too, and, and moving things forward in a way that feels really powerful, what hasn't had the change it should yet are institutions. And so you could have anger and energy on an individual level, but showing sort of anger towards systems or institutions, you know, that, that feels really big and tough and difficult. And I wonder if that's why all the people say it's going to fade away. Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's very connected to the last answer I gave about how we have to change the system, not just our individual behavior within it. And one of the things that I kept trying to write about, and many of my colleagues 
who were doing the reporting, often the, the sort of revelatory reporting on and the analysis of the, the hashtag MeToo movement in the fall, um, the outgrowth of Tarana Burke's Me Too movement. Um, one of the points we kept making and that I, I write about in the book is that there, it's easier, it's so much easier to think of it as being about individual monsters, right? Thinking about these things as individual problems is so much less daunting than acknowledging that what we have to do is break the whole system and rebuild it, remake it, refashion it to be a better system. Because that is really hard work, and it's going to take, it's not the thing we can do in a season or with one story or with one firing. It's the kind of thing that's going to involve changes to our laws, to the rules that dictate how men and women are supposed to behave with each other. This is, and this stuff is disruptive. It can be painful, especially when it comes to gender inequity. You're talking about intimate relationships whose very terms are being challenged, the rules changing in the middle of the game. This is one of the things that happened during the second wave of feminism in the 1970s when the possibilities for, for what women's lives could entail professionally, educationally, economically, sexually, changed very swiftly. And with it came changes within their marriages. And people who had entered marriages with one sort of agreement, oh, this is the kind of marriage we're going to have, the political, legal landscape changed, and suddenly the ideas about what, what was desirable in that marriage changed radically, and a lot of those marriages ended. Some of the some of the women I talked to in this book who have begun to devote their lives to activism also are talking about their marriages partnerships being challenged. It's certainly at the heart of what we talk about when when men write the stories about like but what about flirting? What about eros? And some of the women are are writing those stories too. And and on the one hand, my great temptation, maybe sometimes I say it aloud is like this isn't about flirting, right? <laughs> but <laughs> But we have to remember that we grew up in a world in which it, we never actually challenged the confusion of flirting and harassment with any kind of repercussion. And so why the hell shouldn't they never have been disabused of the notion that like grabbing their subordinate's ass was just the rom most romantic thing they could have done? Um, so this, when, when we're actually talking about enacting that change, changing who has power within institutions and how power is conceived of and how it is monitored and what the repercussions are for its abuses, when we talk about altering the, the very social and romantic ideals about how intimate relationships are supposed to play out, that is so, it's taxing, it's hard, you, it, it's painful within our own relationships. And so it's so much easier to be like, well, <laughs> we fired Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose, so we cleared up that whole harassment problem. <laughs> um, it's much easier. We, I, I write in the book about how my friends and I, some of them doing the work of the reporting on this, we started joking partway through <laughs> about... Um, <laughs> feels funny. <laughs> it is so, so funny. Um, um, about Get Out, right? The horror movie. And, and it was all a joke, and we started joking about, like, the women of the sunken place who were, you know, defending a lot of the bad behavior. And, the, you know, and my friend, Arin Carmon, who's a reporter who did actually a lot of the reporting on, on Charlie Rose, along with Amy Britton, in the Washington Post. And um, she said trust no one, right? 
And I write in the book about my realization at some point that a lot of the world wanted to treat me too as like, as like a Freddy or Jason situation. Like that there was one super bad guy and if we, if we got rid of him, then that was fine. And our, our turning to, to get out was an acknowledgement that this horror movie was about the system that was all around us. So, <laughs> it's funny. It's really funny. Well, well, can I ask you though about joy? Um, so, I, there's some folks here from the National Women's Law Center, and <laughs> and and one of the things that I really believe deeply that we need to help fuel us in in this work is joy that movements don't work without joy and like music and laughing and dancing and and building that in to the work as you're doing the grind is key. And at the same time, people are hot mad, right? Like how do you, how do you square those two? So I actually want to, part of what I want to do without being naive or unrealistic about it or selling some kind of like health regime about like the benefits of anger is suggest that we, we so need to get rid of that baggage that told us that the anger in response to inequality was poisonous, corrosive, unattractive, and, and, you know, people wouldn't listen to us or take us seriously because of it, and we were all, like, you know, man-hating, sexless, angry harridans. Um, one of the reasons that we need to, part of the process of getting rid of those assumptions is also divorcing the conviction, getting rid of the conviction that to be angry is to be automatic, that anger is automatically combative and divisive. It can be. Anger is really, really powerful stuff. I, it's like fuel. And I believe that it is a necessary accelerant, propellant, um, at the beginning of what we hope will be, or, and in the midst of what we hope will be transformative social and political movements. But of course, it can also combust. It can combust and, um, between allies, there is tremendous anger about inequality, inequality, racial inequality, economic inequality, um, homophobia, all kinds of things that have been within all mass movements that, and, and that internal and internecine anger can fracture coalitions. Um, I also think it's necessary that we work through it. But in addition to its power to div divide, I believe that anger can connect. I believe that one of the reasons that, that a power system works to quell and quiet the anger of women is because it wants to discourage connection, communication, and coalition. And I think that we need to think about how sharing anger, communicating it with each other, can in itself be a joyful experience. Anger, the release of anger, the not having to swallow it, the not having to always figure out how to hide it or dress it up in something funny, that can be joyful release. It can be good for us. We have it in us. We are angry. To be angry about injustice is correct. And to spend your life being told that you can't express it, that's what corrodes. And the belief, the, the trust, the, the desire to listen to the other people around us who are angry about the same thing that we are, that can be communion and release. And, and read Brittany Cooper's eloquent rage. She talks about the joy of finding and harnessing her fury and using it as a superpower, as a black feminist. This, this 
and, it, and it's not just a directive to everybody go out and be mad because there are costs. You may lose the, the match. You may, you may lose your job and incur terrible penalties. You can be arrested for showing your anger. You can be killed by police. These, there are costs in the world. So I'm not just saying go out and, and, and be angry, but find communion with others. Listen for their anger. Find what you have in common, what you can share, and then you can also dance and listen to music after having gotten it out and, and begun to think about how it can take you to a place where you work to make things better. So apparently you guys get to ask Rebecca questions too. Uh, and there are two microphones and I think if you want to make a line and there are no microphones up top but you guys can also come down and ask questions and so while people do that I'll ask you one last one to think about. Uh, and, and that is, I agree with you, you know, Two minutes after Me Too went viral, I was getting calls from reporters who were saying, when's the backlash coming? Can I, I really want to write a story about how Me Too is done because of the backlash. And I was like, it's, it's two weeks. <laughs> that cannot be. Um, but I think we saw in that hearing room and over the last week, the intentional stoking and seeding of the angry white man backlash. That that is that was all that was Kavanaugh and Lindsey Graham that that was Trump over the last week with his call to action to men to be scared and fearful. So, I, I, is it coming? And 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 will it be angry? The backlash is what we are living in. The backlash is Donald Trump, and not just his win or his openly racist, xenophobic, sexist rhetoric on the campaign trail. It is the root of his political life as a birther, working to delegitimize the first black president. It is Jan Brewer pointing her finger in the face of Barack Obama when he was president. It was what's-his-name shouting, you lie. The backlash is, is the the post-feminist, post-civil rights, post-gay rights era building of fury at incursions on the power of the white capitalist patriarchy by people who had historically been barred from making those kinds of incursions. And we are living at a particularly intense moment of it because symbolically there were some of these political, the, the presidency of Barack Obama, the inevitable presidency of Hillary Clinton. It was inevitable twice, by the way. Um, the, the, the lady ghostbusters <laughs> for real, you guys, like people are so fucking angry about the lady ghostbusters <laughs> and the Jedis <laughs> and gamers, right? Like we are living the, the, the political world in which we are living is one that has been made in part by the fury of the, of the formerly inviolably powerful, um, furious at the imagine, at the, the, the diminished status. And so, yes, the backlash comes 
every day we are living in the backlash and it's gonna come every, yes, this is what it is. Yes, he's stoking it. Yes, he is out there mocking Christine Blasey Ford. And he is out there talking about how Brett Kavanaugh's life has been shattered and how it's very scary what's happening. This is the response whenever people who historically have had less power challenge the hold on or accumulation of power by those who've had it and abused it. It's the, the, when the power moves in the opposite direction, and I always go back to this example, when Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore, this is when I first started paying attention to these power dynamics. Freddie Gray was taken on a rough ride in Baltimore and he died as a result of his injuries. And there were protests in response to his death. And every news report I read about that said that the violence began when protesters started throwing stones. The violence was discernible only when it moved in a direction that power doesn't usually move. The death, the murder of Freddie Gray wasn't discernible as the commencement of violence because that's just how power works. The same is true when, we, when people cast Me Too, the, the hashtag movement, the, the conversation about sexual harassment, in which part of the story we were hearing was about the systemic um, exile of women from professions, the, the massive loss of stature and jobs of women. And that was part of the story we were hearing, the way that their power had been, had been compromised by the abuse of power of, of, of men, men who, who harassed them. And yet, what we heard over and over again was about how the men who had lost their jobs, that job loss, that was a witch hunt. Their lives were being destroyed, shattered. It was so scary. The mob was coming. They could, it could come for you next. That is the, that's what's being stoked every time Donald Trump says, this is a scary moment. The hordes are coming for you. It's because part of what's happening is that they fear that the way power is supposed to work is being disrupted. And the lines have formed. So what I think what we will do is we'll just go one, two, and go back and forth so that you didn't just happen to pick a, a bad line. <laughs> Hi. I'm enchanted by the idea of elegant rage. I'm feeling very messy in my rage right now. Um, and I say there's not a really good place to scream in the city. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, how can rage, man how can anger manifest? What does anger look like if it's not a constructive, if not heated, conversation? Well, I think that we have probably a lot of lived history of what anger looks like if you're not giving full-bodied voice to it, right? It often looks like tears. Um, I mean, one of the things that I write about is how tears are misunderstood. And so often... <laughs> So often, and this is especially true for white women, 
um, who within a white patriarchy, their vulnerability and traditional femininity is more easily discerned and, and empathized with or sympathized with, um, that tears are understood as vulnerability and weakness when in fact they are the, the most ready expression of our blind rage and our inability to find an outlet where it's not gonna redound negatively to us. I think that you hear it in comedy. Um, and that's been true. There are so many, I went back and looked at, at f women comedians who've talked about how their anger informs what they do. Watch Full Frontal, right? Often the monologues that Samantha Bee gives, there's not even a punchline. <laughs> She's just screaming like Paul Ryan is a bad person over and over again. <laughs> But you know what? It's hilarious. And the punchline is we don't get to say this in real life. And everybody sits around and is like, oh, no, he just really cares about taxes. Right? And you're like, what? No, that's a lie. That is a lie. And then a comedian gets on stage and is like, he's bad. And he's been dreaming of stripping people of their Medicaid since he was standing around a keg in college. And you're like, ah, oh, my god, that's hilarious. Um, Uh, yeah, yeah. Profanity. I write about the use of profanity. And, you know, um, a, a fun fact. Uh, uh, apparently, profanity is an analgesic. They have done tests where people have their hands in ice-cold water, and the people who are using a vulgar word keep their hand in that water for, like, double the time of people who are just saying a neutral world. Um, there are a lot... So, I, I guess there are... There are all kinds of ways that we let our rage out, even if it's not in like a, a primal scream. But one of the things I think that a that an efflorescence of of protest culture has provided there's some other things to do with it. It's it's writing your fury on a sign and holding it up, even if you're not screaming yourself. But maybe sometimes you're screaming. Maybe you're screaming at the back of a hearing room until somebody takes you out and arrests you. Maybe you're knocking on doors and telling. Maybe you're telling your story. Maybe you're telling your story. And you're, maybe you're not even saying it in an angry voice. Maybe you're saying it in a polite and solicitous voice, but you are, your anger is, is pushing you to make sure that your story, your experience, your humanity is heard and that he looks you in the eye when you say it. <laughs> okay. So I think in your book, you do a really good job at talking about the differences in how anger is received based on identity. And one of the things that I'm noticing just from being in this space that is dominated by white women right now, every time you critique white women, white womanhood, it's followed by silence from the crowd. But when you say something else, it's followed by snaps and claps and affirmation. And I just feel like the way white womanhood is functioning in this space right now as we talk about anger and rage is kind of making me angry because I don't think there's clear accountability happening right now. So I guess my question is, can you unpack that a little bit? And can you talk more about what the responsibility of white women to other women's anger actually looks like? Thank Thank you for that. One of the central questions of my book, and it's a question that does not have an answer, 
is whether coalition is possible. Um, I, you know, I mentioned in the questions that part of my book is about the anger between women and um, the anger over inequality, racism within a women's movement as it has always existed and, um, and by many measures deformed a women's movement in the ways that it has erased the leading thinkers and organizers within a women's movement who were women of color and instead had a story of white womanhood stand in for the women's movement, even if in many cases, as is certainly true most egregiously in the suffrage movement, the white women leaders leveraged racism on behalf of winning their fight for white women. Even while calling on women of color as allies, to be allies to them. And there is, there are centuries of anger over these internal realities. And there is a real question, unanswerable until we keep going and not only see what happens, but I hope work to make it better. Um, and I talked to a lot of women in the book about, is this possible? This is something Audre Lorde was writing in the early 80s in her very famous essay, The Uses of Anger, about how in order to move forward, the anger between women over racism has to be voiced, and not only voiced by, by women of color, but heard, internalized, and processed by white women. And... Her argument is that that can then be generative. That the anger voiced and communicated between women can work to propel the movement forward. This is also what I want to believe. This is something that Linda Sarsour said during the planning of the Women's March when there was tremendous conflict over the way that white women, 53% of whom had voted for Donald Trump, then initially were the architects, the initial architects of a women's march that they named the Million, women's, Million Women March, which was an appropriation of the, a name of a protest led by black women years ago that they didn't even know about. And women of color activists from other movements, including Linda Sarsour, came in and there were really painful very loud and very loudly broadcast arguments over the racism within the women's movement, both contemporary and historical. And Linda Sarsour said to me at the time, contentious dialogue is by design. We need to talk about this if we are going to move forward as a coalition, if we're going to get better. And I have always wanted to believe this. I've written this for years and I want to believe it that it's the cacophony within a women's movement, within a movement of, a, of, a, of an oppressed majority. And the fact that it is contentious, the fact that, that there is anger and that, and that we express it, that permits it to grow and I hope get better in every iteration. But there is just as compelling an argument that it's not gonna get better. That white women have not, do not have a great track record of getting better. You can look at some of the polling on Kavanaugh and you can see where this suspicion comes from. You can look at how white women have voted even since 2016 and see where some of this suspicion comes from. And this is a question. 
This book is trying to do something, and I don't know if it's the right thing or not. I feel a responsibility, and I will, in the, in the weeks right before the election, I was on a podcast with a group of women, some of whom had been Hillary people, some of whom had been Bernie people, and it was leading up to the, it was maybe 10 days before the election. And one of the women in this conversation, I think it was Michaela Angela Davis, was talking about some of the white men on the left, many of whom had probably been really ardent Bernie supporters, and saying, why aren't you out there knocking doors Come get, and why aren't you out there doing the work of talking to your demographic, white men, who are the big problem demographic here, and trying to persuade them to defeat this guy? And the phrase she used was, go get your boys, right? And it really struck me, in part, by the way, this is notable, because I'd never heard a white male demographic called on to be responsible for itself before, (laughs) right? (laughs) And... But in the days after the election, I thought so much, and I wasn't surprised about the 53% of white women. In every election since 1952 that we've been keeping track, white women have voted for Republicans except for two years. In 92, when Bill Clinton notably ran on a very aggressive, tough-on-crime platform, and in 96, when some confusing percentage of them voted for Ross Perot. So I wasn't surprised about the 53% of white women, but it did make me think, God, a crucial part of my, like, I think I'm responsible for going to get my girls. And I wasn't sure what that looked like, and I don't know if this is it, but it's an attempt, because I, 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 I want to, I believe that the participation and coalition of white women, I want to believe that it's possible and necessary. I want to believe that the newly energized white women, some of whom I've gone to interview and I see they're like, they're new people. They are spending their every minute organizing, campaigning, getting out the vote, often for candidates who are women of color. They're participating in social movements when up until two years ago they were completely apathetic. I want to believe in the value of that participation. And so this book is written in part for them and about them and to address them and welcome them and say, yes, this, what you're doing, this is compelled. This is what we, you should be doing. But also to say there were people here doing it before you. They are the leaders. They are the models. And some of them are very angry at you. And part of your participation is going to be listening to that anger and taking it in. And it doesn't mean, it does not mean performative, like, self-flagellation. It means listening, which I guess is just the answer to everything. We should all listen more um, to each other. Um, Anyway, I don't know if that's a full answer or not. But this is my, I am wrestling with this, with a question. Okay. (laughs) Hey, Rebecca. Um, So we know that now women's anger is in some ways being more acknowledged, more accepted. There's also this massive backlash happening. And I'm curious to hear what you think, how you think this will play out in the elections. Um, We're also seeing these new images of women running for office, more women of color, more LGBTQ women, veteran women, all kinds of different women, um, particularly looking ahead at 2020. Do you think that women will still have to moderate their anger in the same ways? 
So I have no idea what's going to happen. And if there's any one core belief I have over the past two years, it's in saying I don't know more often because none of us know. And everybody on television who tells you with authority what's going to happen in November is full of shit. They have no idea what's going to happen. And so I'm not going to make predictions about what is going to happen. We are in totally uncharted territory in a million ways. Among them, that we have so many women on the ballot in November, that we are likely to have multiple women running for president on the Democratic side. Let's keep in mind, that's never happened before. Um, is there going to be pressure to modulate? Yeah. We can't get rid of it. We're not, this is going to be, we're going to be dead before there's no pressure to modulate. <laughs> Um, this is, these, are, these are struggles that are well beyond our lifetimes, but we're working on them, okay, right? So don't give up just because it's not going to be better for another 200 years. Um, uh, the, the ways in which women are running are radically different than anything I've seen. Even when I started covering women in politics, which was like, you know, in political time like 10 minutes ago, um, you know, the the way that Hillary Clinton ran for president in 2008 is not only totally different from how she ran in 2016, but like on another planet from how women are running for, for governors, for in governor's races, for the Senate, for the House right now. There's, they're talking about their anger. This thing that I'm saying, there are all these, these um, punishments and censure um, for women who talk about their anger. The front page of the Boston Globe this morning was a story about the women politicians who are already in elected office who are talking about their anger. Elizabeth Warren had like a viral video this weekend that was like, you bet I'm angry. And, and Maisie Hirono, Maisie Hirono people. <laughs> write in the book about how Maisie Hirono, I write about her with regard to profanity because at some point in the past year she's asking all the, the nominees for, for uh, judicial positions if they've ever sexually harassed anyone and somebody asks her, she, they, say, they say but isn't this, a, what about the people who say that this is a very partisan maneuver and Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii goes fuck them and, <laughs> and I, I write <laughs> I write about that in the book, but I have to say, Maisie Hirono, Hirono the past four weeks has like lit up my world. And the, the best part is when she's in the Senate and Mitch McConnell just walks by. She's like talking to reporters and Mitch McConnell <laughs> walks by and she goes, do your job. <laughs> All right. um, so, you know, and, and the, the, here's the thing though. <laughs> This is a revolution in how women can present themselves, and it's, and, but we don't yet have any data on how it's gonna work. We have some data, like that Donald Trump is out there doubling down on the misogyny and telling you that these cursing women are coming for your sons, right? And so that's one of the reactions. Anytime we have a big election and you have historic numbers of women, some of them are gonna win and some of them are gonna lose, and the thing we have to listen for is the analysis of that that tells us women can't win, right? And, oh, we thought all these women were coming, but, you know, some of them lost, so that didn't work. <laughs> right. Right. They should stop running. That, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm the mother of three young daughters. You are the mother of daughters. 
I don't know how to balance teaching my kids about why I'm so damned angry with nurturing the expectation that they have right now that of course people will respect their dignity and equality. Like that's where they're coming from, that's how I'm raising them. But I also want to teach them I'm pissed. And I, I don't know how to do both at the same time, so any advice would be welcome. <laughs> I am notoriously bad at giving parenting advice. Um, <laughs> Um, in part because I have a neurotic seven-year-old who stayed up to watch the entire Cynthia Nixon-Andrew Cuomo debate. <laughs> but, wait, wait, but wait, also gets up in the middle of the night to tell me that for some reason she's feeling anxious. <laughs> so congratulations to me on my terrific parenting. Um, and I, just so you know, like, I don't, I have nothing good to advise you to do. I, obviously, I tell them why I'm angry, which has created a terrible neurotic effect. Um, but I also have found myself very often, I, I think all the time about censuring, how I censure their anger, which I do. Because when they come and they yell at me because they want a piece of bubble gum, I'm like, stop having a tantrum over the bubble gum. You're not, you know, and there are moments, like, I'm telling them, stop yelling at me. Stop yelling, that's not appropriate, you know? Don't talk back to me this way. And then I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and then I'm like, no, but really about bubble gum, that's not, no. I have no answers for you. I think I, I, I obviously fall on the side of like just telling the truth to the degree that it doesn't frighten them in the middle of every night so that hopefully you can get some sleep. Um, and um, also teaching them to listen to, uh, you know, that's, that's the thing. And I actually regret in the, in the um, acknowledgements of my book, I say, you know, I dedicated this book to my daughters because I want to teach them that their anger is, you know, that it's okay to be angry, except about the bubblegum. Um, but I wish that I had said, not again, not just that it's okay for them to be angry, but to maintain a curiosity and interest in why the people around them are angry. Um, now that you are an expert in both women's anger and single women, as a straight single woman, I'm wondering how straight women can date right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I feel that I'm contractually obligated at this moment to say not all men. <laughs> um, I'm also notoriously bad at dating advice. <laughs> Having myself been unable to tolerate dating men for vast portions of my 20s and 30s. <laughs> um, you know, I, there, are, there, are, there are good men out there. Um, there are men, one of the things that has been fascinating to me over the past couple of weeks as I've been out there hawking this book is the number of men who are talking to me about it, um, who give all indication that they're really interested in it, um, that, that they're <laughs> learning from it, right? Um, you know, I think you want to find, I mean, again, like I was single forever. Like, I don't, I'm not going to tell you how to find a, a, a good boyfriend. But, um, <laughs> um, but if you do meet somebody who is genuinely um, eager to know you in your full humanity, 
including showing an interest in what makes you furious in the world, especially if occasionally he makes you furious and he wants to know why, then I think that's a good indication that you may have like solved the puzzle. <laughs> um, and I mean, like that's, that's the thing we want to look for is, is partners, men and women, um, who want to know all of us and not just a version of us that's easy to take. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciated it. Uh, I think a lot of us have been conditioned to fear our anger and are also feeling a resurgence of anger in 2018. What would you say about the process of trying to dismantle that fear and how to do that uh, with dignity and effectively? Um, I would like to recommend another book. Um, <laughs> It was published a few weeks ago by a really brilliant woman named Soraya Chamali called Rage Becomes Her. Um, and Soraya really deals with a lot of the psychological impulses, the messages that were sent from childhood. Um, and I think that like that book addresses a lot of these questions far more capably than I'm able to address them. All I would say is again, um, search for communion and connection with other people. Um, it may also come down to the, to the moments that you're just acknowledging that you're feeling fear. There's an incredible moment in, in um, Hillary Clinton's book about, and I, I'm not meaning to draw the connection between you and Hillary Clinton, um, <laughs> but there's an incredible passage in the book about the 2016 election where she writes about she was so scared of being angry and winding up like Miss Havisham, wandering the halls, she really writes this, that she prayed to God to keep her from being angry. And when I, and this is like months after she has been beaten by Donald Trump. And I read this and I found that paragraph so painful because it was like, you were so afraid of being this caricature of, of bitter womanhood and of what, of how anger might pervert or deform you that you prayed to not feel the thing that you had every right to feel. And so, and how do we unwire those brains? I don't know, except we have to at least, the, my hope is that we can catch ourselves when we're thinking that way. Acknowledge it. Tell someone, I just had this thought. I just, I wish to describe the fear to someone, even if you can't access the anger. Um, and so again, I guess my answer is connection and communication, which I know isn't always easy. Many of us are, are isolated in lots of ways. Um, and, and my hope is that in talking about this more, we'll find other people we can talk to about it. Thank you. I'm sorry to say we have time for two more questions. <laughs> we'll take one from each side, so. <laughs> now we're nervous. I've been, I don't know, I've been trying to like figure out how to ask this question. Um, you have written so well about, um, I mean specifically about Hillary Clinton, about sexism in the primary, 
And um, I guess this is about like, like finding the place to like stand up against sexism when it's being deployed against people and holding all people, including women, accountable for the things that they have done that have been harmful. Um, there's this thing that drives me crazy when people talk about the Clintons in the 90s, um, just because of like the world of difference between Hillary Cause, Clinton. Because one of them was president and one of them wasn't? One of them was president, <laughs> one of them was, wasn't, one is an abuser. Um, and not that the other is not accountable for what they did, but kind of like, how do you come at that? Um, I write a little bit about that in the book. It's really hard. Are you asking specifically about how do I address Hillary Clinton's behavior with regard to her husband's behavior? I mean, not even just that, like, uh, you know, like welfare reform or other things that, you know, she has a hand in, but it's not necessarily primarily her. And yeah, you, I think the only answer is try to unpack it all and look at it at its face and be honest about it. And um, I mean, I don't think, you know, because I, I did prefer Hillary in 2016. Um, <laughs> but, but actually, you know, I, I use the word prefer, like, you know, I, because of my open preference for Hillary Clinton, um, I think that some of you may know me as a uh, corporate apologist for, um, a, a centrist elite feminism. And um, my politics are actually very left. My, my politics are far to the left of, of Hillary Clinton's politics. They're much closer to Bernie Sanders. There were a variety of reasons. And I, and I would have happily supported Bernie Sanders. I would have happily cast a vote for Bernie Sanders. Um, there are varieties of reasons that, as many people do in primaries, you choose, you know, you make calculations about candidates. Um, but having written about Hillary Clinton and been open always about the fact that I was going to support her. I don't, I wrote so many times about all the qualms I had about her. Now, often people didn't hear that or didn't take it seriously. It was just like a reflexive, like Hillary Clinton is flawed. Hillary, like the flawed candidate Hillary Clinton, like flawed became part of her name, right? And we didn't hear that what many of us were actually saying was like, no, no, for real. Like there are flaws. There are things that, that give us that give me real pause, but that that's, there are all kinds of calculations we make about all kinds of people and certainly all kinds of politicians. It is not unusual for a politician, a candidate for the presidency to have flaws and things about which we feel very conflicted. The unpacking of some of the stuff around gender, especially around her relationship to the policies of Bill Clinton, um, which is especially in retrospect, um, but even at the time, I felt were significantly more than flawed. That is hard because you're trying to hold her accountable for her participation and in support of policies that I view as having been disastrous. At the same time, you have to keep in mind the context of having been a wife, an ancillary to the the man who had the power to enact those policies, and beset by pressures as a woman who was already seen as disruptive and too powerful 
within that marriage and within that administration, a woman who had already been blamed for his re-election loss in the 80s because she hadn't changed her name, a woman who was vilified and made into a horrifying cartoon of aggressive, furious, radically left-wing aggression that had obviously nothing to do with Hillary Rodham Clinton. Um, and what kinds of messages were being applied to her at the time and what kinds of pressures she was under, she was under and what kinds of pressures wives in general and political wives are under that they not imperil the, the presidencies, the elections of the support for their mates on whom an entire political party and set of ideas may be depending, right? Like, it's so complicated. And to point that out doesn't mean that you excuse the fact that she supported welfare reform, or maybe didn't, but then retroactively kind of took credit for having supported it. You basically have to lay it out all in the sun, you know? and say, this is what happened. And it's really complicated and there's not an easy answer. And what was written off as a lot of, you know, fangirl boosterism for Hillary was in fact incredibly fraught because she, she, she was, is a remarkable historic figure and she, she And this is not an excuse or a celebration, it is an observation. She is the only one so far who has trod the path that she did. And I think it's impossible to separate who she is and who she became from the world in which she was born and raised. And it's just, it's like the complicated, horrible story of America um, written on her. And how do we how do we pick that apart? We have to do it very carefully and honestly. Yeah. So. <laughs> you have the awesome job of following that. Okay. And no and, pressure. <laughs> and also, I'll say, Rebecca, you should probably give any last closing thoughts, also in answering her question. I have. <laughs> I talk, I talk way too much. <laughs> I think you have all my thoughts. Um, so this question was slightly workshopped. Shout out to my coworker in the fifth row. Um, so we're in Washington, D.C. I'm going to assume that there are some of us here who work on Capitol Hill. What advice do you have for those of us who are working in, within the system to try and change it, especially in a system like Capitol Hill that was not built for us to be there? God, that's a great question. Um, amongst the people who I have gotten to know a little bit as a reporter writing about politics, um, one of the things that I've come to see is um, how hard some people who are working on Capitol Hill, but not as the politicians, not as the elected officials, as the people who don't have the power within the offices, how hard they're working to enact change within those offices, in their work for the people who are doing the work of, of representation. And given the, the complexities of office dynamics, I feel like it's far from me to suggest, you know, any particular way to go about the job. Um, but I know that I have come to deeply admire so many of the staffers who I've met 
And maybe who I know are working to communicate within their offices and to the politicians for whom they work, what's happening in the world, how they feel, the, the power of the, the anger and the, and the protest movements and their own views on injustice and inequality and the way that their more powerful bosses might better address it. I mean, this is tremendous work. And I didn't know before I started covering politics the degree to which the staffers have, you know, work to try to influence and alter the views of politicians who can sometimes live in bubbles where they don't necessarily um, have a great view of the world. And so um, I guess I don't have advice. I, I have admiration for those of you who, who consider it part of your job to improve the system. And I, and I thank you and I encourage you in any way possible to keep thinking of it as part of your work. And, and, and that is part of the work as much as getting out the vote or, or canvassing or registering or running yourself to make the argument to the degree that it is possible <laughs> um, to, to offer a broader view to the people who have power. That is really crucial work and I thank you for it. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you, Rebecca. I feel like I could just continue this conversation for a very long time and maybe another time in New York we can do that. Um, good and mad, the revolutionary power of women's anger. I'm, I've, I've loved being in conversation with you, dear. Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you to all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.